This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. often face these distressing situations in the hospital. I saw the families who didn't know what to do, the doctors who were uncertain because the critically ill patient was incapable and no one knew what the patient's wishes were. Have you ever sat with a friend or family member and asked them what kind of care they would want or not want if they had a serious illness, a terminal illness, or at the end of their life? Documents which capture the written expressed wishes of patients are called advanced directives, and they are available in many different formats. Healthcare professionals, patients, and family members could all agree that patient wishes about their care are important and they need to be respected. Why then, nationally, do only 30% of adults have an advanced directive that documents those wishes? And given that statistic, How could the town of La Crosse, Wisconsin, achieve the surprising goal that 96% of people who die there have an advanced directive or similar documentation? Such a difference from the national average. Some wonder how to begin such conversations while others ask what are the best systems to put in place. Yes, there are better tools, practices, and systems that can help us, our guests, including Bud Hams, who was key to achieving that goal in La Crosse, Wisconsin, will offer insights, innovations, and practical solutions being tested today. I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. If you look at the history of bioethics and medicine, you'll see historical events where patients were experimented upon without their knowledge or their consent. You will see how patients may not have been asked their preferences regarding their care. It is a foundational principle that patients are fully informed and ask their preferences for their care. But how does that happen, especially concerning some conversations, like conversations at the end of life, for example? What are the best practices, not only around initiating these conversations, but what systems are best practice for documenting, accessing, and implementing these patient preferences among various healthcare professionals. Dr. David Bailey, how might these conversations begin? Well, usually they, uh, again, I'm a clinical otolaryngologist and head and neck surgeon. Oftentimes this is due within the life as far as cancers of various organs of the head and neck, mostly with regards to throat cancer. They look at me and the families will look at me and say, well, doctor, is there any more that we can do? Um, is, there, is there any more, you know, is there anything of value that we can do for, do for our uh, loved one or family member, or maybe it's the patient? And uh, that's oftentimes how conversations are started when the patient themselves and the family knows that uh, they're getting uh, close to the end. Um, and then that's in a clinic situation. Sometimes it, it, the situation could be totally different if a person, for instance, shows up to an emergency room and really hasn't m- had much medical care, and you know that the end is very near for the patient. They're obviously not ready to accept uh, anything like this, um, especially if they haven't talked with their doctor or they don't have any physician that they talk to on a regular basis. So 
really the conversation depends oftentimes upon where you see the patient first and in what setting. And it sounds like as well as to, you know, whether they're well prepared or not. I mean, you must have some examples where you just didn't have an advanced directive. You didn't you weren't aware of the patient's previously expressed wishes. And when that happens, what's that like for you or for your clinical team? Well, it can be difficult, especially if you don't know the uh, the patient that had one and you do things that are against their plans. And sometimes the families can get very upset with the healthcare uh, providers or healthcare physicians at that point in time. Um, you can m make mistakes either way, either not providing care that they need or letting Mother Nature take its course. So with, if you don't know, you know, you have to take the time and you have to ask. And I can tell you, it sure is nice when you do know, though. <laughs> it makes things so much easier. Right. And I'm sure you must have had some situations as well when you may be very clear about what a patient's advanced directive is or their their wishes for their care plan, but perhaps having some family members or friends of the patient maybe disagreeing or wanting to go in a different direction. Well, that's very common. You know, of course, you may have had, uh, I don't know, grandma or Aunt Bessie or whoever is real sick towards the end. And then you have lots of kids, grandkids, you may have cousins, and you may have as many as 10, sometimes 15 people show up. Many of these people may have guilt involved in their minds, and so they want you to do everything for uh, Aunt Bessie when it may not be the best thing to do. It may be best just to, you know, let have what time she has here on Earth to talk to whoever she wants to and say whatever she wants to and then, you know, uh, let time pass. And, and uh, you have, you know, the families can have many varying opinions and it really makes things extremely difficult. You can sometimes situations can even become hostile between family members uh, and physicians and nurses. It, makes, it can make for a really ugly scene at the end of life when it really doesn't when it should not be that way. If we go to national statistics, 90% of people say that talking with their loved ones about end-of-life care is important, but only 27% have actually done so. This is a statistic from the, the uh, Conversation Project National Survey in 2013. 60% of people say that making sure their family is not burdened by tough decisions is extremely important yet 56% have not communicated their end-of-life wishes. 80% of people say that if seriously ill, they would want to talk to their doctor about wishes for medical treatment toward the end of their life, but only 7% report having had this conversation with their physician. And finally, 82% of people say it's important to put their wishes in writing, but only 23% have actually done it. Bud Hams, I'd like to bring you into our conversation as the key leader for respecting choices and the key in initiator, I believe, as well for the success of the work that was done at La Crosse, Wisconsin. When you see these national statistics and you realize that La Crosse, Wisconsin had such dramatic outcomes of being able to get so many people 
to put together an advanced directive. You know, how did that story of advanced directives in La Crosse, Wisconsin begin, bud? Oh, thanks, Kevin. Let me just start by saying that the stories we just heard and the data that you just uh, reviewed um, is what I remember occurring in La Crosse when I started my work at Gunderson Health System in 1984. Um, we, we often face these distressing situations in the hospital. I saw the families who didn't know what to do, the doctors who were uncertain, because the critically ill patient was incapable and no one knew what the patient's wishes were. That was the norm back uh, in La Crosse when I started in the uh, mid-80s. Um, we decided to try to change that, and uh, we changed it by focusing on what, what our goals for a better system might look like, what, what, might, a, what might success look like. And success was really defined uh, by, first of all, uh, really understanding what people values and goals were or would be in these circumstances, and then having a system that would be able to communicate those and honor those at the time those decisions were made. This inherently had to involve the family. So uh, the kind of story where the family shows up and is in disagreement with the document, we saw that too and we knew that needed to change. Um, so we really started to put a system of care in place in which we routinely approach patients, discussed their values and goals, documented them, and created a way of communicating those across setting and across But, you know, a lot of systems have tried to go down that road, and uh, some have been more successful than others. And obviously, you at La Crosse, Wisconsin, have been very successful what what do you think led to that level of success specifically for you folks? Well, the the first thing is is that there's no silver bullet. There's no single thing to do that is uh, a new document, a new pamphlet, a community campaign. Those are all good things to do, but no one of them alone is going to achieve success. The other, uh, so uh, success, I think, is generally uh, achieved through a multi- kind of faceted, dimensioned uh, intervention. The second thing is, is it has to be sustained and managed over time. Uh, so a, a great deal of our success has really uh, occurred because of the willingness to measure whether we were achieving success, finding out why we were failing, and going back and redesigning that piece of the intervention which wasn't working. Uh, so quality improvement has to be a big part of this. So a multidisciplined or multidimensional approach, looking at many different aspects that have to occur kind of together, measuring outcomes and seeing where your system is not uh, working, and then having sustained uh, clinical and administrative leadership that provide the needed resources uh, to carry out the work. You've talked before about five promises that were present right. as part of your approach. Can you just walk us through those? Sure. So uh, this really gets to uh, what, 
what commitment should health organizations uh, making to their patients, and how do we know we're achieving those things? This really came out of a presentation I made to an IHI national meeting uh, where the theme was promise keeping. And I really asked myself, what if we have an advanced care planning system and the health organizations in La Crosse are creating the system, what promises are we making to our patients? And I came up with five. Uh, one is that we as a health system, we are responsible to initiate the conversation about future care. The second is if, if we can get you engaged and you want to plan, we promise that we will provide you competent and skilled assistance in planning with you and your family, not just with you as a patient. We promise that at the end of that process of planning, that the plan is going to be clear. It's going to be clear to you, the patient. It's going to be clear to your family so they understand what you want. And it's going to be clear to any physicians or clinicians who take care of you in the future. We promise that we will maintain this plan in our medical records or whatever system we're using so that they can be found and be used by the people who make decisions when that crisis comes. And then we promise that we will follow these plans appropriately. So plans, of, of course, will always be inherently incomplete or unclear in some way or other. So they're a piece of important information, but the, the family, as well, along with the clinicians and physicians at that point, are going to say, what does this mean? How does it apply? How do we actually make a decision that honors seeing this plan and what we know about this person? If we can keep all five of those promises, then we have really changed how we do business, how we provide care, and then advanced care planning really makes a difference in the outcome for that person and their family. And so those are the five promises. And you said you tried to think about what success would look like. Did you have a, a desired outcome of advanced care planning? Sure. So uh, you kind of quoted from our beginning. We wanted to be able to say that we, uh, in almost every case, would know and honor an individual's informed plans. Uh, this starts by a really effective uh, and quality planning process. We think that process should engage uh, the person so they have at least the opportunity to pick not just a healthcare agent, but a well-prepared and well-qualified healthcare agent, and that we provide specific instructions that um, really mirror uh, what that person needs to plan for at that point in time. So what a healthy individual plans for is quite different than someone who's, you know, only have months to live. The, the level of detail can be, certainly be quite different. But then the plan has to be available and it ultimately has to be followed. As you said, here in La Crosse, um, our most recent population study where we looked at every adult death in La Crosse County at every setting of care found that 96% of the adults who died had some type of written care plan, but that care plan was in their medical record at the site of care where they died. And we followed the instructions. We honored the instructions or preferences in those 99% of the time. And those included instructions for treatment. So the people who wanted to go back to the hospital, uh, who uh, said ICU care would be appropriate, they got care. If that was medically indicated, they got that care. 
So this is the kind of system, a very person-centered approach to honor, to know and to honor that person's uh, preferences and goals. So Kate, very pleased to have you with us. You've kind of looked at this issue at a national level. What are you seeing? What are you finding is important? What what are you learning around these kinds of conversations on a national level? I think that some of the big things that we're learning is kind of what we're we're seeing here in the poll, the family conflict or people not being clear about what their wishes are. A lot of people still not having these conversations or filling out their forms. And so the conversation project is really dedicated to ensure that everybody's wishes for care at the end of life are both expressed and respected. And that expressed part is really hard for people. How to even think, yeah, for a lot of people, this isn't language that's very clear to them. They worry that it's, that it's legal or it's medical and it's all about tubes and CPR and things you do with an expensive lawyer. So really helping break it down for folks to realize this can be about what your values are. Are you concerned about too much care or too little care? Really how to help get people thinking about that. You know, we always say that it's always too soon until it's too late. And so I think historically, when we talk about end of life wishes, a lot of people think towards the end of the continuum. Let's just talk about that with people as they're approaching the end of life. And we're really trying to move people upstream. How do you do it when you're living with a chronic illness or when you're young and healthy and you should have conversations about what you would want if something unexpected occurred to you? Um, so this idea of kind of just having this be part of regular adult life planning. And while we're going to talk about and how important it is that the healthcare system know how to respect these wishes, again, we really need people to be expressing them and, and not just living in some filing cabinet or in some lawyer's office or my favorite that I've heard, the safety deposit box down at the bank that nobody has the key for. But how can we break these social taboos so that people can talk about it with their loved ones and there isn't as much of that? family angst. So that's what we've been working on, kind of making some free tools available to people build awareness about this through traditional media or social media, and really trying to reach people where they live, work, and pray. We found that reaching people not in a medical setting or not in a legal setting can often be much more palatable for folks. You you mentioned your website. On your website, you have a starter kit for people who want to initiate conversations either with family or friends or, or who they might be connected with. As you travel around the country and you present this kind of work and ways of initiating these types of conversations, what, what, what are the common issues, questions that seem to come up as patterns? Yeah, so I see two things. I'll start maybe with the things that occur for individuals or for family members. One of the biggest ones is really encouraging people to think about their wishes right now giving current answers. I'll go out and people will say, well, I don't know if I'm going to be in a car accident or if I'm going to get cancer. That's kind of the point. There's no way to hypothetic know all of the hypothetical scenarios. And we joke that we should have named it the Conversations Project because you don't just do this one time. So answer your questions right now. What would you want? You know, my husband and I had this conversation. We were just married. He answered every question as if he was 85 years old with Alzheimer's in a nursing home. And that would be a great scenario if we get all the way there. But I need to know what he would want right now if something unexpected occurred. So really encouraging people to answer it that way first. Another one of the big things that comes up, and and maybe you recognize this, I'll have people who come up to me in tears about the care that they provided for their father or their grandmother, saying the only thing she wanted was to die at home. And her Alzheimer's got so bad that we couldn't care for her at home. and We had to put her in a facility, and I have so much guilt over that. And helping people realize that home is not always feasible. 
and that it's important to unpack that. It might not be medically feasible, financially feasible, physically feasible. I was in New York City and somebody's on a fifth floor walk up. But try to understand what it is, what are the values behind that. I know for my grandmother, it's that she could have her cat with her. For other people, it might be home-cooked food or making sure they see their family. And so there are a lot of things you can honor about that. Um, and so that's come up for a lot of people. There's another around wanting to make sure that if you're picking somebody to be your healthcare proxy or agent, that they can actually honor what your wishes are. You know, you don't automatically have to go to a spouse or the oldest kid. You know, we, we talk about the designated daughter. Um, really trying to think through who do you think can honor what your wishes are, be your voice. You're making the choice, but who could be your voice and could speak up and, and ask questions? So we've seen a lot of really interesting examples about that. There's the question that we heard at the beginning about what do we do with Aunt Betsy when, you know, 12 different family members come in and they all have different opinions. And so this idea of making sure, you know, you need to have the conversation with your your agent or your proxy, but you can tell more than that person. There's a woman I met in Florida who said she was she and her husband had had this conversation, but she was his second wife, and his adult children had no idea that he had selected her as his decision maker, and that it would make things so much easier if he could just give them the heads up. You know, I put Susan in charge. Here's a little bit about what I told her. But so making sure that you're telling people you're you're not just you know keeping this secret. I think those have been important. They're really wanting to be wary if you hear people say, if I ever get like that, pull the plug or give me the whole enchilada. Those kind of phrases usually have a lot more behind them. And so hopefully using either our conversation starter kit or some other tools will help people tease that out. I'm, I'm also drawn to an example from another event in Florida where a woman got up and, and shared that, you know, she owed her father a huge apology. She was in tears. And she said, you know, he's just yesterday, he's had all sorts of conditions and he was really sick and he wouldn't go to the hospital. And my four siblings and I were laying it on so thick. We were calling him, texting him, showing him up at the house. I was, I was floating my eight-year-old son in front of him about how he needs his grandfather. And I'm realizing he's trying to tell us something. You know, his silence is a message and we are not listening. We're kind of bullying him into what we think he should do. And so I think just being aware of that with caregivers or, or family members is important. You know, Kate, uh, Bud talked about five promises of an advanced care planning system that that a health system might make uh, to its patients. You talk about five principles to be ready to have a conversation. Yeah. Can you can you walk us through those? Yeah. So our idea, as I mentioned in the beginning, is that everybody's wishes for care at the end of life are both expressed and respected. And so if I do my job and I get these millions of people across the country to have these conversations and know what they want, we need to be sure that the healthcare system is what we call conversation ready. Um, so we've been working with dozens of healthcare systems around the country and have identified these five key principles that are the most common areas that a lot of health systems can struggle with. And we have additional white papers and courses on this. But the first is to really think through how are we going to engage our patients more proactively to understand what matters to them. This is like smoking cessation, weight loss. How do we kind of build this into practice um, to be more proactive, whether that's primary care settings, you know, primary care docs saying it's your first Medicare visit or your 50th birthday, and we do this with all of our patients. I'm not just singling you out, Mrs. Smith, or upon ICU admission or nursing home admission, that we're going to do this within 24 hours. So how to really not wait for the patients to bring it up, but to be more proactive in engaging them. 
The next is to think through how we steward that information. We use the analogy, you know, how can you steward this information as reliably as we do allergy information? How inappropriate it would it be in a medical record if it said, do you have an allergy? Yes, no. And that was it. And yet that's what we often do for do you have a healthcare proxy? Yes, no. And there's no follow-up or information that people don't have one or where you could find it. It's not as simple as saying, just scan it. We want to know that within a record, you know what matters most to a patient and then who you could go to if you have further questions. Perhaps there's an amazing you know, patient visit note from three months ago at the primary care doc. How could somebody in the emergency room access that and have it be very easily coded into the EMR if you're using one um, so that other providers could access that? So that's some work that folks often do with their IT departments. We know it's really important, you know, when the rubber hits the road, how do we make sure that we're respecting what somebody's wishes are? And again, we have no say in what somebody's wishes should be. We just want to make sure that that's at the center of the care they're receiving, especially at the end of life. And there's a lot of analogies here probably to the birth plan movement. I got a lot of friends having kids, and they're invited to design a birth plan after talking to their clinicians. And it's known that that won't always play out exactly right. You know, medically things might change or timing might change, but everybody's working with that in mind. And so how to do something similar to that at the end of life. I think underneath all of that, we need to make sure we're exemplifying this work as healthcare leaders. How do we walk the walk? have these conversations ourselves so that we're not being hypocritical. Yeah, I see here we got, what was it, about 48% of us have had these conversations or done our own advanced care planning. I saw a group in Memphis who said, we've got 10,000 hospital employees in the city. If each of us had this conversation, we could really snowball it out. And I know that from working with all different health systems, sometimes a lot of the non-clinical folks don't realize this is something they can do as well. So I think we really need to democratize that. And then the, the final principle, which is so important, is how to make sure that we're connecting in a manner that's culturally appropriate for each patient, for their families, for the providers. And, you know, how do we approach this with humility and curiosity and wanting to learn more and not monolithically applying, you know, somebody's Catholic with a big C. That doesn't actually mean anything yet. We need to learn more about what their wishes are. Um, and I've seen some great work from healthcare systems, especially you know, working with clergy, for example, at Henry Ford Health System, they had a big panel, a, a two-way panel where clinicians explained to clergy things that they needed to know about end-of-life issues and what we struggle with. And then the clergy got up and were able to share more from all different denominations with the providers about what should you know about our faith and our background. So just making sure that we're approaching that with curiosity and interest um, is so important to make sure that we're not causing harm to dignity at the end of life for people so this can really be a, you know, we know that all deaths can be sad, but that there's a real difference that we see with people sharing stories between a good death and a hard death. And so these are some of the things we think we can do to provide better deaths for folks. You know, Kate, when you mentioned snowballing out with our own employees, uh, I know that Providence Health and Services uh, Health System on the West Coast incentivized uh, employees to complete an advanced directive after uh, watching a video that helped them to do that. There's probably all many different ways and many different ideas about a, how to best do that as well, just to begin with employees so we might be able to lead in that manner. With that, Suzanne Engelder has also uh, joined us. And Suzanne, you're a little unique here, I think, because you are a healthcare clinician who, through your own experience, 
saw the importance of these kinds of conversations and what could occur if the conversations never happened, the challenges that that would present to clinicians and clinical teams. And you actually started a center for advanced care planning and advocacy. That's never an easy thing to do is to simply start. Can you tell us a bit about that that beginning, that starting for you and, and the starting of the center and how that went? So what Bud and Kate have been speaking to and Dr. Bailey as a clinician, seeing in the ED and the ICU patients and families struggling with trying to make decisions and not having an advanced directive in the EMR, sometimes having to go down to our basement in the hospital and dig through past records, trying to find a paper copy of an advanced directive and being asked to go in and consult with the families regarding what a patient would want and what their wishes were, maybe to extubate a patient or to stop treatment or even just start treatment. A lot of times what we heard was we have no idea, and we'll use the Aunt Betsy <laughs> example. We have no idea what Aunt Betsy would want. We never talked about it. And so our question was, are we honoring patients' wishes um, as, a, as a health system if we don't even know what those wishes are? And we were seeing um, later and later referrals to hospice and palliative care. And although hospice may not be what a patient wants, we do know anecdotally from caring for patients on hospice care that a lot of times families would say to us, I wish we would have known about hospice sooner. I wish we would have had dad on hospice sooner. This is really what he wanted. He wanted to go home and be cared for at home. He did not want to continue this treatment. So having those kind of experiences led us to stop and pause and say, what, you know, what are we doing well and where are our gaps and how can we improve on this? So we said, how do we start? And we started by looking at advanced care planning programs, um, resources and tools throughout the, the country. And we really wanted to build awareness. And we started small. We, we did not have a big initiative throughout the health system that was communicated internally and externally. This was something that we just started small by building awareness. We started participating in National Healthcare Decision Day events. We started bringing in employees, and, um, educating them about what advanced directives were and encouraging them to complete their own so that they would turn around and feel more comfortable at the bedside having those conversations. We looked to nurses to consider a clinical ladder project around advanced care planning. In our health system, we have the CLIN 1, 2, 3, 4 ladder. And so we looked at some of those bedside nurses who, particularly in ICU and in the ED, who saw these patient experiences every day and said, I want to ma make this different. I want to uh, change this. I want to help patients and families. So they took that on as a clinical ladder project. So we did start small on um, building awareness, and we did look at IHI's triple aim as a kind of our North Star. This is what we wanted to do. We wanted to improve care at the end of life. We wanted to improve the care of the population as a whole. We wanted to reduce health care costs, and in particular, the conversation project. So it's a, a great segue <laughs> to have me present after Kate, because we did embrace um, the five principles of the conversation project to organize our work, and keep us focused on what we were doing and why it was important. We created an advanced directive task force within our health system 
So we have multiple hospitals and healthcare organizations within all of California. So that's Northern California and Southern California. We brought stakeholders together, formed a task force, and, and we looked at what are we doing well? What can we learn from each other? And then we looked at those gaps and we looked at opportunities for improvement. And bringing in those stakeholders was really helpful to, to get traction and get things moving and get more awareness throughout the health system. Um, Suzanne? The projects that we, yes. What, what would be the spectrum of stakeholders that you would bring together in a task force? Like what different areas, what, what backgrounds? So we brought together um, clinicians. We brought together some of our people that were um, responsible for population health, healthy communities, physicians. IT was really important to bring in IT, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a, in a little bit. So anybody that would have an investment in improving care, quality, performance improvement folks. So we really tried to pick people within a multiple ministries within our health system that, one, were, were already engaging in this work and were already um, committed to improving it, or two, they were a stakeholder and they could potentially affect change down the road. So we brought those folks together and we identified early on um, two projects that we wanted to work on. And again, this was based on the conversation projects, five principles. And that, that first one was IT, and that's respecting patients' wishes. How can we do that if we can't even locate the document? We really wanted a single source of truth to go to. We didn't want we didn't want social workers from the critical care unit going down to a basement, flipping through charts, trying to find a document. We wanted a single source of truth to find that document so that we could honor it. And that's why it was so important to have IT folks on our, our AD task force. They were, they've been very instrumental in getting some work moving forward. And then the second um, project we took on was the employee engagement, educating employees and incentivizing them. So we did have an employee campaign that was very successful. We, um, at the time, before we merged with Providence, we had about 25,000 employees with St. Joseph's Health, and um, 60% of those employees participated in the advanced care planning campaign that we had, which was similar to Providence, which was watching a video and, and some kind of call to action that they would have conversations with their family, they would complete a document, and they would share that information with their care provider. Suzanne, um, you're, you're, in, in this, yes. your center has been uh, up and running now for two or three years? Two years. Two years. G given the work that you started and what's continued, what, what do you find, what do you find is working? What is what, you know, you probably experimented with a lot of different things, but what did you find was was most important and it just really worked well? So I think the, the two highlights that I would probably say that is most successful is the actual uh, boots on the ground work that we're doing. So we are going into our ambulatory care. I think Kate referred to moving these conversations upstream. That was one of our goals was to move these conversations upstream and have them when patients are healthy, have them at the senior well, well visit, not have them um, in ED and ICU and, uh, during a crisis, but to move them upstream. So we um, focused on our ambulatory care physicians and providers, started educating them about how and equipping them how to have the conversation using the conversation project tools, 
using uh, Dr. Tugawande's serious illness conversation guides. So um, really empowering them to have these conversations, equipping them with tools to do that. And, and if they bought in, we did have early adopters who bought in and started doing that. And we did see some increased in um, billing for that um, activity. Um, if they could key that off and then refer to the center, we would go out and finish up those conversations and complete the document and get that document into the chart. And we are seeing that. We are seeing the return on that investment is we are seeing more advanced directives in the chart. And then we also have piloted an advanced care planning clinic, which has been very successful so far. It's just been a few months now where we are capturing patients in a clinic setting where we can have those conversations, touch as many lives as we can with information and get that document completed if it's appropriate and get it uploaded to the EMR. The next step, and, and this is a lot of work, is um, reviewing whether we're honoring patients' wishes. So looking at deaths in our ministries and seeing, did they have an advanced directive? What did the advanced directive say? And did we honor those wishes? And now since we have merged with Providence, this is a Providence St. Joseph's Health Initiative. So it's now started as a small project with myself and, and a group of people advancing this work. It is now an initiative for Providence St. Joseph and the Institute for Human Caring, which is led by Dr. Ira Bayok. And it has become an initiative. And I think from here on out, um, there's buy-in. So I think that we, we made some progress. Suzanne, knowing you, I know sustainability is, is really important for projects you begin. What, what have you found are, are the building blocks there as well? Once you've done it, once you've experimented, you've had some good results. What's your secret around sustainability? So I think the, the first one would be that you have providers who have bought into it. So you have providers who see the importance of it and agree that it, that it is part of our mission and vision to provide the care patients want, and, and we honor that care. So that's the first one. And then I think making it an initiative is important. So if you can work with your healthcare system to make that initiative, make it part of your vision and your mission of your healthcare system, which it should be for Catholic healthcare to begin with. So I don't think that's a, a problem. Um, but if you can get it on paper and be part of an initiative, I think that helps with the sustainability. And I believe bringing in quality and performance improvement folks, this is um, in line with the work that they're doing. Uh, helps with the sustainability. And I know that Bud has a great article on return on investment for advanced care planning. I would encourage everybody to take a look at that article through um, Respecting Choices and look at their return on investment strategy for advanced care planning. Well, tools and resources are, are very important. And uh, each of our guests today have, have websites where they have listed uh, their tools. Certainly, respectingchoices.org, that website with the work of Bud Hams, uh, offers a number of tools and support. As well, conversationproject.org, another website devoted to this work with the starter kit that we already mentioned, plus other resources as well. And of course, Suzanne, who was just with us, their website at www.talkaboutwhatmatters.org, also another uh, resource for advanced care planning. And we would add one more to the list, and that's simply uh, 
that some listeners may find helpful, www.makingyourwishesknown.com. Simply another site uh, that helps individuals identify what's going to be most important for them around advanced care planning. At this point, we want to open up our mics, so to speak, to our listeners and and allow for the asking of any questions. And uh, if we don't have anybody right away, I know that I've got one question for our guests who have joined us today. But any questions for our guests today, given our conversation so far? Well, Suzanne, Kate, and Bud, I would ask this question, you know, out, out there currently, I just know that there's individual clinicians who are thinking, how might I start? What might be the first step I could take? I've heard a lot uh, today, specifically, and I'm, I'm wondering what my f- first step would be. I wonder what each of you might recommend a first step for a clinician who wants to start some movement on advanced care planning. But I'm going to start with you. Would you have any initial recommendation of that first step for them? Well, uh, you know, I think um, the, one of the first steps people can do is to really take some measurement of what the current practice is and uh, where the gaps in, in advanced care planning as well as honoring patients' choices might look like. I, I think sometimes we just need to remind ourselves what, uh, what, what's the current outcome and why, why should it be upsetting to us? Um, the second kind of practical thing that I think is achievable is to really look at your organizational policy around advanced care planning. Is it a policy that simply says we're going to ask people if they have one and we're going to check yes or no? The policy at Gunderson Health System is this robust policy about our commitment to engage patients, to honor preferences. It lays out roles and responsibilities for almost every staff member who interacts with patients. So uh, having a policy kind of sets out a commitment for an organization, a vision, and and then it it can start to drive work. So I I think figuring out where you're at and where your gaps and limitations are, and then really developing an institutional vision that translates into a policy of how you want work to do gives you kind of a guide or a a map of uh, where you are and where you want to go. And then uh, uh, we could go into more detail about how to get there. But those are two kind of initial things that I think could be done to really guide organizations. Thanks, Bud. Kate, any any thoughts for for a first step for people out there? Yeah, I think um, Bud's comment about how to kind of do a little data collection is important. One of the things that we've recommended or or could suggest to people is to do a quick death chart audit. So depending on the kind of provider you are, could you pull the the records of the last 15 or 20 patients that you had who've died and take a look at whether or not you had information in their record about what mattered most to them or who you could have gone to with additional questions? You could maybe go so far to say, you know, if something was noted there, did we honor the wishes? But take a quick pulse just by pulling some records. I think the idea, too, of figuring out what your facility's policies are is a good one. I would say team up with at least one or two other people so you're not trying to take this on all by yourself and really try to break this down into bite-sized 
pieces. You know, at IHI, we're big fans of testing things kind of small. This is a big, complex problem that is extremely difficult and extremely unique across all different facilities. So, so to set yourself up well, not to think that you're going to solve this all in the next couple months, but um, who you please team up with. And I actually think that one of the very first things that if everybody on this call, if the only thing they did is to go home and have the conversation themselves or to do their own advanced care planning, again, we'll start to break these taboos and get people a little more comfortable with it realize it might not be quite so scary as they thought it was. So there's a little reflection work we can do as well. Thanks, Kate. Suzanne, your thoughts. I, I love Bud and Kate's ideas. And I'm, I'm thinking as maybe a, a bedside clinician, what, what could the bedside clinician do in his or her ministry to, to build awareness and get started? And, and like Kate, I feel like sometimes starting small um, is less overwhelming. And I think there's a couple opportunities. One is, like Kate said, bringing a, a group of people together to work on that, like our Advanced Directive Task Force, or we have at some of our hospital ministries end-of-life committees where we have stakeholders and we do look at data on how are, how are our patients dying in our hospital um, and breaking that down and how can we improve that. And then a great opportunity for everyone is National Healthcare Decisions Day, which is April 16th. And you can start to build awareness in your individual ministry with events, workshops for that day. Because it gives you an that day gives us all an excuse, right? An excuse to do this work and and maybe even an excuse, like Kate said, to go home and have the conversation with your family because everybody across the country is doing it. It's a national event. Dr. David Bailey, I, I hope you're still with us as well. And just wondering in, in your physician practice, in your practice, is there one particular thing that you found most helpful in regard to advanced directives and maybe having these conversations with patients? Well, I, I think when you speak with families, the most important thing to express is that you're not trying to extend their life necessarily as long as possible. What you're trying to do really is to have what life they have left as good as possible and following their wishes. Um, everybody's different, and we talked about a lot of things today. And that the other thing to remember, too, is that this document lives. It changes with time. So you may come in for a day surgery procedure, have an untoward event, and you weren't planning on it. You still want everything done for yourself as much as possible. But then you're transferred to ICU. You've had a devastating for instance, a noxic brain injury or something, there's no hope for recovery. And then the family has to, you know, change their mind on things. So uh, the document can change over time. And, but anyway, overall, I think it's about making people's time that they have left as uh, much to their wishes as possible and not necessarily just prolonging it. Well said. One of our uh, listeners had a question with respect to, you know, readable forms, the, the, the better documents out there for having these kinds of conversations. Certainly the conversation starter kit is one of those kinds of documents. I know Respecting Choices also has documents as well that are very easy to read and complete. Suzanne, what's, what's your thoughts on easy documents to utilize around advanced care planning? 
I think depending on your state, the content of the advanced directive may uh, vary. So in the state of California, our, we have a variety of different advanced directive forms that are available in addition to the five wishes. Not every state uh, recognizes the five wishes. And so I think what is important is for people to take a look at uh, a few of those documents. They, there are some that are uploaded on our website, and but that again is for California and Texas because of St. Joseph's Health. But I think look at the document and see which would be the most um, appropriate for the individual that's completing it. For some people, a simple form that's naming a decision maker and saying um, what kind of care I would want if I were seriously ill and checking a few of those boxes along with whether I want to be an organ donor and those types of things is enough. For another person, they may need to be very detailed and have a lot of blanks that they fill in what's important to them, what their values and care preferences are. So I think it really depends on the individual that is completing the form, how you capture those values and wishes. Sounds like person-centered orientation uh, to me, Suzanne. You know, choosing the form that is going to help people with where they're at. Well, uh, we're coming to a close for uh, today's webinar. We really appreciate our guests for sharing with us their innovative practices, their own experiences that honor patient wishes today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this edition entitled Traction, Innovative Practices Honoring Patient Wishes. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast. Exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.